0: I think particularly the fifth stanza there, in thee we die and rise to God. That is very appropriate for the message that we will hear now from the book of Acts. And so turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We will conclude chapter 14 today. I'll read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them from every church, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." Let's go to the Lord now together in prayer. Almighty God. Through a a human and frail and weak servant, your people have the opportunity to hear a word which is not the word of man. Prepare your people to hear that word and enable your servant by a power not his own to speak that word. Uh, Lord, uh, may the whole company here be diligent to to look, to be attentively looking for what good things you may have for us in your word today. and Bring us many good things from it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I told you we would be coming to the end of Acts chapter 14 today. And as we come to... The end of chapter 14, we actually come to the end of something else quite important. It's something important to mark. And if I told you with this chapter, we're coming to the end of something, your, your eyes might glance down and you might see uh, verse 19 where it reads, They stoned Paul. And you might think, Well, yeah, we come to the end of Paul. <laughs> it's over for him. But we find out that this chapter is not. The stoning is not rather the end of Paul. What's it's the end of, it's the end of the first missionary journey. Paul is stoned, but he rises up. Not only is his life not ended, but his service to the Lord is not ended. And all of these things are put on display for us in a unique way. I think that in Paul, in some very unique ways, the Lord displays, puts on display what the Christian life ought to look like. And so if you are interested in the Christian life, and you should be if you are a Christian, then pay careful attention to the word of God today. And as we look at Paul and see in his life, the Christian life on display, we'll see that it is put on display in three ways. First of all, we will see the power of the Christian life. Uh, Secondly, we will see the shape of the Christian life. And thirdly, we will see the context of the Christian life. Where is the Christian life lived out? The power of the Christian life, the shape of the Christian life, and the context of the Christian life. And in seeing all of this put on display, I'll uh, summarize it, you will see a resurrection, crossed shape life lived out in the church. Well, let's think about the What we see in the life of Paul, first of all, considering the power of the Christian life. What is the true power of the Christian life? What animates the Christian life? Well, that really has been, in many ways, the topic of the book of Acts from the very beginning, hasn't it? That's been on display from chapter 1, as we see the resurrected Christ the one who, uh, is, who ascends the mountain of the Lord, who is enthroned at the Father's right hand, who receives in the, the, the fullest way that a, a man, the God-man, but that a man can, the very life of the triune God poured out in him, as Luke says, Acts 2.33, he receives the promised Holy Spirit, And as he then pours out the life of the triune God in the spirit upon his church, that's the power that's been on display from the very beginning in the book of Acts. It is the power of our resurrected Lord. And if Acts chapters one and two don't train you to be looking for that, to be seeing that power displayed in the life of the church, in the life of Christians, if the first two chapters don't train you to see that, you will be missing something very distinct and very beautiful in the book of Acts that has been put on display before we got here in a unique way. We have seen that, for example, I've called attention in Acts chapter 3, as well as in Acts chapter 14, there are almost duplicated Acts, one by Peter, one by Paul, of the raising up of the lame, those lame from birth, so that they leap like the deer. The resurrection life of Christ is at work in them. But now, that same power is put in display not in others, but in the apostle himself, in the life of Paul. Uh, We see Paul's death and his life. And you might think, Uh, Well, what about verse 19, Pastor York, where he is stoned? uh, Does he actually die in that passage? Uh, Verse 19 indicates that he didn't actually die because the text says that the Jews supposed that he was dead. And So even though that is the case, do not miss the point. Do not miss the point that Luke places him before you as though dead. Paul's life experience here in this text is exemplary of the entire life of the church and of the Christian, one of dying and rising. And Reformed commentators have noted this of this text for uh, quite some time. Uh, Calvin says in his commentary on this passage, Because he serveth Christ faithfully, he is stoned. His constancy constancy is commended to the end that we may follow it. He was indeed wonderfully delivered by the Lord, but as touching himself, he suffered a most cruel kind of death. Therefore, we must make like account of this testimony as if he had been slain. He says on the one hand, he suffered a cruel kind of death, and then he speaks as we must understand him as though he had been slain. And if it's not the resurrection power of Jesus Christ put on display here in this text, what precisely is it? What is it that causes a man who is stoned to death, at least in the the minds of those who do the action, to rise up? And what is it that causes uh, this man as his entire body from head to toe? I mean, this is not just something spoken of. He was rocks crashed into him, his His head and all of his body was bleeding. He may have had broken bones. He was a bloodied, battered mess. Yet we read in the text that he rises up and the next day, he takes what would have been about a 30-mile walk to Derby. Already we see there is something supernatural going on here in this passage. Moreover, not only that, what would cause this one who experienced all these things to then go forward to these other remaining places we see? He's really working his way back through the places where we've seen him come. This is the return path we're seeing right now. What would cause him to go all these places where he's already experienced some measure of persecution and preach the very same message, which got him all into all of this trouble to begin with? What is the only power which can enable such a life? It is not a power within you. If I gave you the best pep talk, uh, maybe yelled at you or gave you some very winsome words, if I gave you the best pep talk that any human being could give other human beings, I could not bring about that kind of life in you. You cannot produce it itself. Luke's witness to us here is that, that the power which impels the Christian life as put on display in the life of the Apostle Paul, the power of Jesus ascended, the power of Jesus enthroned, the power of Jesus receiving the Spirit and the life of the triune God, that, my friends, is true resurrection life. And it is the power of the Christian life is that the power of your life is that the power of your life if you are looking to jesus christ in faith it is it is the power which animates your life and let that seek deeply into your heart and soul Let it profoundly affect you. And how so? How should it affect you? Well, it should rescue you from deep discouragement. You see, as uh, beleaguered and defeated as you may feel, you may feel very defeated in your fight with sin and seeming to face invincible giants in your own life and in the lives of others who you relate to your husband or your wife or your children or your co-workers or or those you go to school with. If you feel as defeated as Paul did, battered and bloodied under that pile of rocks, if you are united to Christ, the power which will cause you to rise and rise and rise and rise again and again, it is not your power. It is the power in the in the words of the uh, writer of Hebrews, of an indestructible life, of resurrection life found in Christ. It is supernatural resurrection power granted to you through your union with Jesus Christ. And you need to know that, and you need to think deeply about that, and that should comfort you. But having looked at the power of the Christian life, let's move on now to look at the shape of the Christian life. Once one is united to Christ, and once they have a, if I can put it this way, resurrection life coursing through their veins, then what does all of that inexhaustible power lead one to do? What should one's life look like? What shape does it take? And uh, here I believe we see what is implicit in Paul giving up his life and his uh, receiving the cross and, and being stoned, what is made implicit is also made very explicit in this text. And we see that uh, in verse 23. There we read this. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. By many tribulations. You must enter the kingdom of God. What is the shape of the Christian life? The shape of the Christian life is this. Tribulation. The shape or form of the Christian life is the form of a cross. It is a cruciform shape. This is the shape which says this. You die. That's the shape of the Christian life. When we read in verse twenty-three, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The word translated "must" in the ESV day in Greek it is uh, it, it it's, it's the word necessary. It's necessary, and in bringing that out, I'm trying to make the point: it's not optional. You must enter the kingdom of God, not just through many, not just through tribulations, but he says here many. <laughs> Uh, that would be many in number. I think we could also see it would be many of kind. There is the direct physical onslaught. There is persecutions. But there are many other kinds of tribulations in the Christian. I just read the book of Revelation. It speaks about tribulation, great tribulation. And then it maps out all kinds of tribulations, some dealing with false teaching, some dealing with persecution, some dealing with uh, self-centeredness and attraction to pleasure. All kinds of tribulation. Are you prepared for that? Because, there, Christian, there is no other shape to the Christian life than that of the cross. None. The world is telling you that the shape of your life uh, must be defined in terms of uh, justice, let's say. Justice defined in terms of redistributing the power between the oppressors and the oppressed. Or perhaps it is telling you that the shape of your life must be found in you discovering your identity. Uh, Perhaps that is a gay or straight man or woman or whatever other identity. There's there's all kinds that you may sovereignly choose to transmute yourself into. Or just crassly, the shape of your life from the world's perspective is all about self-indulgence and pleasure. God's word tells you that the shape of the Christian life Is a cross. Christ's pattern of death and then life, very interesting. Think about what I'm saying. Christ's pattern of death and then life is reversed in the Christian life. Not death and then life, life and then death. I'm not talking about how we were once dead in our sins, that's true. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life doesn't begin with us dead in our sins, does it? It begins with us being raised to life with Christ. The Christian life is the reversal of the order of life found in our Savior. Uh, It is being raised to resurrection life, and then by the power of that inexhaustible life found in Christ, the life of the triune God being empowered to give ourselves unto the death, unto death of this world again and again and again, enduring tribulation, enduring the cross for the sake of Jesus Christ. Will you surrender all to Christ? Will you surrender all to him? Will you give up everything, and I mean everything, to serve Jesus Christ, serving him faithfully, though you should be ridiculed and and perhaps even persecuted? Persecuted? Your life could never take on this this shape, the shape of death, were it not for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ being granted to you. But it does. It does take on that shape because that is precisely the life empowering your life as a Christian. Well, we've looked at the power of the Christian life, the shape of the Christian life. Now, thirdly, the context of the Christian life. What is the context of the Christian life? That's the word I chose to express this idea. The idea is, where is the Christian life to be lived out? And the answer to that question, as we look from verses 23 through the end of the chapter, especially, the answer is the church. Exclusively? No. Uniquely? Yes. Again, we see this in Paul's life. Uh, and and no, now we see him devoted to the life of the church. Not everything happening in his, in his life is a uh, can be lifted up in and placed directly on all of you. But there is a connection, nonetheless. For example, we read in verse twenty three that uh, he or or they appointed elders for them in every church. That Greek word there for appointed is uh, it could be translated to uh, to reach out one's hand. So commentators have wondered what's going on here. Some have thought, and actually this Greek word may be able to mean this, uh, something of like the raising of one's hand to elect an elder. Now, we do believe that the congregation does choose their elders, but I don't think that that is what's going on here. It seems more likely that Paul is, uh, Luke is speaking of the, the appointing, uh, meaning ordaining or installing by the laying on of the hands As he does say to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, 4.14, he says that is done by the laying on of hands of the presbyterion, the presbytery, the council of elders. Now that's not something every believer can do, but every believer does play a part in such a process leading up to the laying of hands on elders. Moreover, if you read verses 24 through 28, you see that, Paul's life is a life of being caught up in service to the church. He travels from place to place, and then he returns to home base. Uh, If you you didn't notice that, when he comes to Antioch at the end, that's the Antioch that he began from. Remember when I preached that sermon about how the the church in Antioch commissions him, and Barnabas uh, commended him to the work of God's grace as spoken of here? That's where he returns, and then we read there in verse 27, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, with whom were they sharing all of this news? Was it just with other elders or was it with the deacons? Ministers? No, it was with the whole church. It was with everyone. And that's bringing into view the fact here that this part of the Christian life that I'm trying to bring out, everyone has a part in this. Everyone has a stake in the life of the church. No, you're not called to spend every moment of your life doing stuff for the church. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that the church is not just one part of the Christian's life, of which there are many parts. The church is the crown and joy of the Christian life. And this is expressed, I've tried to bring this out as I preach through Acts, and in Acts chapter 114 and 242 uh, speaks of those in the church devoting themselves, devoting themselves to the life of the church. That's not language which is used of any other activity of a believer. This particular truth, which is expressed here and elsewhere, has been a particularly challenging one to think about and to speak of and to call you to over the last year. In the context of the Christian life, if the place where the Christian life is to be lived out is the church, how do you call people to live their lives out there when we have been challenged like we've been challenged over the last year? And I say that not to moan and bewail, what we've gone through. I say that rather to spur you on and encourage you to what is before us, not looking behind, but looking on before us. We as a church have almost completely regathered. Now, we're still doing that in different ways and upstairs, downstairs gathering, but for the most part, we've completely regathered. And at the beginning of the first Sunday in July, we are going to return everything to, to the way it was before the COVID situation came into view. Get ready for that. Think about the fact that your Christian life, one empowered by the resurrection life of Christ, directed to take shape in the shape of the cross, and that there is a context for that life to be lived out in first and foremost in the church. Get ready for that. No, you can't all be laying your hands on people, uh, ordaining them and appointing them to service. But you can be praying that the Lord would raise up uh, new officers in the church. You can go to your existing elders and ask them, how can I serve? How can I live out my Christian life in its most ultimate context, especially as the church is resetting itself? Maybe you can't be a missionary, but you can invite people to come to the place where they can hear the word of God. And you can play a missionary role should you see newcomers come. You can be mission-minded to immediately identify such newcomers, to immediately seek them out, to immediately greet them, to help them to have a place within this church where they too might be able to live out their Christian life. As we get back to Sunday school, you can consider whether you might have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to teach one of Christ's little ones, and we will need teachers. You can consider how the Lord gives you one whole day in seven to devote to him. You can consider how you might live out your Christian life uh, the whole day long, That's a privilege, the whole day long, and not just worshiping, that's the most important thing, but uh, perhaps planning and preparing and opening your house for Christian hospitality, welcoming others into your home. And if you want to hear more about the use of the Lord's Day, then come this evening, I'll be preaching on the Fourth Commandment. Brothers and sisters, through this dying and rising presented to us in the life of Paul, through his telling us that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God, and through the panoramic picture presented of life in the church, through that you should see what the Christian life is all about. You should see the Christian life on display. I hope you see your life as it is in Christ on display. May you be empowered with the resurrection life of Christ. May you be directed to the shape and form of the cross, may you live out your life your Christian life most ultimately and most basically within the church let's pray